Good morning, live from Los Angeles in Sinai Temple. I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman with Rabbi on the Sidelines. This week we are joined by ESPN college basketball play-by-play announcer as well as Major League Baseball play-by-play with Sportsnet and the Toronto Blue Jays, Dan Shulman, usually from Toronto, but this week found in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dan, good morning and thank you for joining with us. Uh, My pleasure. Good to see you, Rabbi. How are you? It's good to see you. I'm wonderful. A shout out to a Rabbi Jared Grover from Beth Tikva, your home synagogue. Who also I know him well, yes. <laughs> sends his regards as well. Um, this is a show where we talk about the intersection of faith and sports, two topics that are usually not really spoken about together in the same sentence. Uh, but when we connected uh, early on in the pandemic, you shared with me a very interesting story when you were a high school basketball player. Um, with Bialik, a Jewish school, and you went into neighborhoods that were not necessarily Jewish, and you didn't talk about the really blatant anti-Semitism that you perhaps face, but maybe take us through playing for a Jewish school in sports and going into another area, and what was that reaction from them? Well, actually, that wasn't, maybe we've uh, crisscrossed our stories a little bit. Oh, it wasn't when, this wasn't for Bialik. This is when yeah. I was in, I, this was when I was in high school already. So yeah. uh, I was at a large public high school uh, in Toronto. And it, it's funny, the high school that I went to, York Mills Collegiate, I would guess was maybe 40 or 50% Jewish. It wasn't mm-hmm. 80 or 90% Jewish. Um, and, and, and I don't want to, you know, stereotype at all. This, this only happened once or twice in the, in, in my years there. But there were a couple of specific schools, one that that I remember, where we were clearly made to feel uh, like we weren't wanted there. And um, it, it was difficult. I, I had grown up uh, going to Bialik to a Hebrew day school for nine years. I had gone to a Jewish camp. I lived in a neighborhood that was fairly Jewish. So even just going to York Mills uh, as a 14-year-old was my biggest exposure yet to the broader world that was out there. Uh, but there were obviously no issues at, at, at York Mills. But when we went to this one high school, uh, you know, as we were in the layup line before the game, they were throwing coins on the court. And, and I don't even know how many of us even realized in the moment what they were doing, why they were doing, what they were trying to convey. And it, it was a little un, unsettling. So, um, but, it, you know, I, I, I mean, I want to be clear. I, I have experienced very little anti-Semitism in my life and, and, I'm grateful for that and, you know, as unsettled as the political climate is these days and as much as we we worry about things, I'd really like to believe that uh, things will get better. And when you talk about the political climate and really we spoke about this also in terms of the racial aspects that are happening in the world. This year you're watching college basketball with uh, names on jerseys, but also equality and justice. Last week, Andy Katz mentioned to us that no coach is going to silence a player today. How do you see the position of the players um, and and their 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 stature in society and sending messages both to athletes and also to young people out there as well? I think it's wonderful that uh, young people are are feeling empowered to speak their minds and listen. Young people are our future, and anything that promotes equality, anything that promotes unity, and whether that's for African Americans or Jewish people or uh, people from Eastern Asia or wherever they are from. Uh, they all deserve to be, we all, all of us deserve to be treated equally and to be treated well. And so, you know, it, it is interesting how politicized sports has become at times. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes in a good way. Sometimes I think it's, you know, maybe been twisted around a little bit. You know, you think back to Colin Kaepernick in the NFL and, and a few years, that's only a few years ago now. And, you know, you know, the wave that that has created. And I think it is wonderful for athletes to, whether it's professional athletes or collegiate athletes, uh, to use their platforms and, and to speak their minds. So anything that promotes equality and tries to do away with racism or anti-Semitism or any kind of ism is uh, is a positive in my book. I mean, even this last few days with, you know, Mark Cuban and the national anthem and the NBA saying it's all going to be played. Any thoughts in, in terms of what's happening right now? Uh, I, I, that feels like it's a little above my pay grade. You know, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because the national anthem hasn't always been played at sporting events. I believe right. it came in during World War II as a as a as a patriotic thing. Um, I enjoy it. Like, you know, I've been at Toronto Maple Leaf hockey games and Toronto Blue Jay baseball games, and it's a little bit spine tingling, you know, for a big game and you have the right anthem performer. So I do enjoy the anthem. I don't uh, I, I don't uh, delve into uh, maybe I should more, but I don't really delve into the undertones or or conflicting points of view. I just I, I'm Canadian. I like my I like our anthem and it. And when I go to a Maple Leaf game or a Raptor game, you know, um, Canadians are very proud of, of, of their country and we're very proud um, of our teams. And if it's a big game, it's an exciting moment. So I, I don't go too much deeper than that. But I saw that Adam Silver said, um, you know, now that fans are starting to be allowed back in, the anthem is once again mandatory. And it's I think it's a, I think it's a large and a, and a complicated issue that each sport is going to have to deal with individually. So let's talk about another anthem for a moment, and that's the Hatikva, because I know there are a few moments in your sports career, not broadcasting career, but sports career, that you heard that Israeli national anthem play, and that's in the Maccabi games. Yeah. Take us through why why was it important for you to play, I believe, the Masters division yes. of the uh, basketball, first in Brazil um, and then in, in the state of Israel. So it's interesting. In Canada, we call them the Maccabiya games, not the Maccabi games, but they're, they're, yeah. the, they're the same thing. So... Um, I mean, I, I wasn't a great basketball player. I was an okay high school player. That's all that I was. And then I continued to play for many years, played B'nai B'rith for a number of years uh, with some buddies and probably stopped playing. I became a dad at 27 and probably stopped playing shortly after that. And then many years later, uh, when I was in my mid four, early 40s, I guess, uh, somebody approached me and said, hey, we're having a, a fundraiser for JNF. Can you put together a team? And I put together a team of my old high school and university intramural and, and B'nai B'rith buddies. And we actually did okay. We finished second in the tournament. We lost to this really good team. And uh, that was the end of it. And then a couple of months later, the, um, the, I, think, the I think his title is the chairman of, of um, the Canadian Maccabea um, delegation um, called me and said, hey, uh, he got my number from somebody. And he said, hey, I was wondering if you would be interested in helping us do a fundraiser. So I said, sure, why don't we get together? So we had lunch, and there was another guy there, and that guy was the point guard on the team that beat us in the JNF tournament. <laughs> and I said, you look familiar. And he said, you look familiar. And we figured it out. And he he was the vice president or is the vice president or vice chairman of the Canadian delegation. So we talked about this fundraiser event. And then at the end of the meeting, his name is Alex. He said to me, um, he said, we, we have a pickup game Tuesday nights. Do you want to come out and play with us? So I said, okay, I'll just, yeah, I, I can come out. So we went out and played, and at the end, you know, a bunch of them are like clearly huddled in a circle as I'm taking off my shoes, and they come over to me and they said, "Would you like to to join our team?" 
And I said, what team? Like, I didn't know. I didn't even know who these guys were, I don't think. And they said, we're the Masters team for, uh, for the Maccabi Games for Canada. And that's how it started, like total fluke. And they have me on the team uh, because I'm, I'm a good teammate. Uh, and, and I have five fouls and two elbows, and that's my job. If I get the ball, I'm immediately supposed to give it to one of our skill players, one of our guards, go set a screen on somebody, go get a rebound. Um, but it's been wonderful. I, it's, you know, I never thought I would play basketball again, and I certainly never thought I would play competitively. And again, I'm not very good. The object when you're in the master's division is to deteriorate more slowly than the guys on the other team. And my ceiling's not very high, but I'm a good deteriorator. I'm not I'm not getting worse very quickly. So my first time, as you said, was in Brazil at the Pan Am um, Maccabea Games, and we finished second to the United States. And then in uh, 2013, I went to Israel and unfortunately broke my foot in our first game. And then in 2017, I went back which I wasn't going to do, but because I got hurt in 2013, I wanted to play in Israel. And I went back in 2017 and we had a great time. We, we, we didn't have a lot of guys. We, our, our roster was a little thin. A couple of guys we were counting on couldn't come. Uh, and six or seven of us really played most of the minutes and we did as well as we could do, which in that, uh, in, at that time meant we, we won the bronze, uh, Israel, beat the U S in the, in the final, uh, Israel beat us. The U.S. beat us. We beat Russia, Argentina, Brazil. So we were the best of the rest. Um, but it was very cool. The first time I went in 2013, I went to the opening ceremonies and uh, uh, Netanyahu was there speaking. And you walk in as a delegation. You're all dressed in your country's colors. And it, it was very cool. There, I think there were, God, I bet you there were 20,000 people in the stadium because it was athletes and, and officials and family members and everything. So um, it's been a wonderful experience. I mean, it's allowed me to go back to Israel two more times. So I have been to Israel now four times and twice because of the of the Maccabi Games. And it's allowed me to play some basketball and it's allowed me to make friends who have now become just about my closest friends in the world, too. So that's a story that you would never hear on the ESPN broadcast. I was waiting to hear that during the Duke-UNC game this past yeah. week, but it just didn't <laughs> show up yet. But yeah. are there moments where you can combine or where you actively can share again not the story of breaking the foot and everything like that but who you are behind that microphone as a person that can make a difference in the world or is that something that you just is, is your personal personal space well that's okay so there are there are a number of layers to that question there's i don't know if you mean f- just in terms of faith and then you said who i am as a person and then you added on who can make a difference in the world so <laughs> uh, i think people you know, I think people get a sense of who I am as a person. I mean, we'll tell some funny stories and my kids' names may come up or a little personal, uh, you know, a personal story may come up, but not usually much more than that. I, I think that happens more if you're a broadcaster for a local team. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're doing 162 L.A. Dodger games, you know, mm-hmm. if you're Joe Davis, um, Dodger fans are going to get to know Joe Davis extremely well. Blue Jay fans know me extremely well. It's a little bit different on a once a week national situation too. So to be honest with you, you know, if I had to give you just a yes or a no answer, those were my only two options. Mm-hmm. It's probably more of a no. I mean, I'm there to call the game. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I was hired to do. Um, and, you know, you can interact a little bit in that respect on Twitter, I guess. With, with social media, there are some opportunities there. But for the most part, I, I do keep my professional life and my personal life 
separate. I, I'm, I'm a fairly private person, and, and I like to distinguish between the two to a certain extent. Actually, I'm going to go back a couple of years because this happened when I was watching a game, um, and it was Syracuse-Pittsburgh, and I was so moved by what Pittsburgh do, did. They put a Jewish star on their uniform, and I reached out to Coach Tim O'Toole, a former Syracuse guy, and he was as moved hearing from me as I was moved of what they did. Um, in that moment, would it perhaps uh, come out or not even then? Well, had I been on that game, I, I think uh -huh. for sure. I, I, I didn't call that game, but that was after the – um, the shooting life. In, yeah. in, in Pittsburgh. So yes, I, I think, and, and to me, that's no different than Black Lives Matter or or mm -hmm. any other cause. You know mm -hmm. that that certainly warrant discussion. So had I been on that game, without question, it would have been discussed in the moment. So I actually do want to take you back to a historical moment. I was in New York on 9/11 as a sophomore at Columbia University, and that started just a different world that we live in. And in 2000, uh, actually. You were broadcasting a Phillies baseball game with Oral Hershiser and uh, Bobby Valentine. I just want to play that clip for a moment so we can see and take you uh, there and uh, ask a question about that. Burst into a chant of USA as everybody found out, everybody with the exception of the players initially actually knew what was going on. And as you guys said, um, start with you, Bobby. I mean, because of the magnitude of the moment and being in this kind of an environment with 45,000 people, it's, it's you're going to remember you were here forever. I remember I was here, and I remember that I was managing the New York Mets in 9-11, and I had the honor of managing a team that took the field on September 21st, on the first baseball game in New York mm -hmm. after those horrific attacks. Uh, that was when the healing began for many people, and we began to get back to a recovering state. So that's a moment where I say it's beyond the game. Take us back to that moment when you realize it's not just a baseball game, but it's an right. American moment. It's a world moment. Right. So I've actually never seen that clip. That's from our post-game yeah. report, I think, that we did for SportsCenter on ESPN. So um, if, if, for, if people are watching it, it's not 100% clear what that was. That was the night that Osama bin Laden was killed, and it happened mm -hmm. on a Sunday evening. Bobby and Oral and I were doing the Mets at the Phillies Sunday night baseball. So when you're doing Sunday night baseball, I think it was May or June, I think, you know, you're the only real live event, sporting event going on at that time. And uh, what happened was like in the seventh inning or something, Bobby nudged me with his elbow and just showed me his phone. And, and he had gotten a text from somebody. And I don't remember who the text was from. I'm not sure I ever even noticed who the text was from. doesn't matter. But the text said, all it said was, we got Bin Laden. Wow. Well, I looked at him like the game's going on. I looked <laughs> at him. He looked at me and I call another pitch and then I go on talk back, which means I can talk to the, the producer and the director in the truck without it coming out over the air. And I said, do you have anything on Bin Laden? And they said, yes, don't say anything yet. We're corroborating the details. And I said, OK, wow. call another pitch or two, another pitch or two. And now I'm communicating with the truck. What do you know? What should I say? Round ball to second on the first two down. That bouncing back and forth. And eventually they got enough um, uh, corroboration that they felt uh, comfortable telling me, okay, you can go with it. And, and I played it incredibly cautiously. I just gave the facts, the facts as we knew them. Um, as time went on, say into the next half inning, it was 2011, I believe, you know, so people have phones and they're starting to find out on their phones. And within a few minutes, this incredible chant of USA, USA breaks out of the ballpark. And what I've always likened it to was like a Lake Placid hockey game or something like that. That's the mm -hmm. fervor 
with which people were were chanting. And so that became a story. And uh, that dominated our conversation. And, and again, sitting next to me was Bobby Valentine, who was mm-hmm. the manager of the Mets at the time of 9-11 and was very visible front and center after the fact. So uh, Bobby and Oral and I, uh, we talked about it a lot. The game, the game, oddly enough, wound up going like 13 innings. Mm-hmm. We were on the air, I bet you, for two hours after the story broke. And it was a very odd back and forth between a baseball game and the biggest event going on in the world at that moment. And the fact that the Mets were there, a New York team Mm -hmm. made it a little bit bigger. And you had some random people in the, in the ballpark who just happened to be wearing a USA jacket or a shirt or something like that. And it was, um, you know, as you heard me say to Bobby in that post game hit, it's, it's something you'll never forget. Mm -hmm. And how does that play out in terms of, uh, bringing it to the country and actually during the Jewish community, I'm reminded that it was Yom HaShoah, it was Holocaust remembrance that they, in that moment, I was at a Holocaust remembrance when the rabbi stood up and he said, I have interesting news to tell you at this moment. Um, that is obviously not something that you prepare for. Are there any other moments of history that have interacted or that have mixed with a sporting event? So, certainly nothing to that degree. I mean, there have been some, uh, in the last year or, two, uh, year or two, again, you know, where politics and sports have become intertwined, um, you, you know, back in uh, in the summertime, I guess, you you know, we had, I was, there was a night I was going to do a Blue Jay game. I can't remember who they were playing, but the Blue Jays and the other team decided an hour before the game not to play as a protest mm-hmm. in support of equality. This was mm-hmm. what was going on with the NBA teams in the bubble and some of the baseball teams did the same thing. Uh, you know, th- things like that. 99.8% of the time, you, you don't have that. Yeah. You're there to do a sporting event. And, and it's interesting because no matter what the world event is, there are people who feel, and they're more than entitled to feel this, hey, this is my distraction. I just want to watch a game. Mm-hmm. You know, there's enough bad news in the world. I turned you on to watch a game. <laughs> and, I, and I've got to be cognizant of that too. Though you know, they're not necessarily wrong. That's how they feel. And they're, they're entitled to their feelings. So it, it's always uh, a bit of a balance between sports and, and everything else that's going on in the world. Actually, there are two events that I vividly recall as a childhood being in the carrier dome for one was the Pan Am 103 bombing, which took the lives of many Syracuse university students that, that, uh, that day. Um, and also the beginning of the Gulf war Syracuse was playing Yukon and the yeah. Dov Hennefeld was on the court and to announce that we were going to war was, again, one of those moments that you never forget where you were. Oh. Yeah. And so when the Gulf War started, it was 1990. And I was uh, in my first year in, in this industry. And I was working in a city uh, called Barrie, Barrie, Ontario, about 50 miles north of Toronto. And I worked at the radio station during the day. And I did. Uh, I was the play-by-play announcer for the junior hockey team on, like, the cable access channel at <laughs> And I don't know how I found this out. This is pre-internet and pre-cell phone. I don't know how I found out. But I was doing the hockey game with my coworker and my buddy and my roommate, Joe Cummings. And uh, and maybe at first intermission, I was worried about what was going on and would Israel be brought into it. And maybe I went to a payphone at the arena and called my parents. I, I, I don't remember. But they said to me, Israel is under attack. Mm-hmm. And I went back to the booth, and before the second period started, I said to the producer, 
I said, guys, I hate to do this to you. I said, but I, I got to go watch CNN. Uh, I wow. can't do the game anymore. Now, had I been working on ESPN or Sportsnet, I don't think I would have done that. I was a 23-year-old kid. We were on a cable access channel. You know, if we had 100 viewers, maybe, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So coincidentally, Joe and I, our apartment was like three blocks from the arena. So Joe said, okay, you got to do what you got to do. So Joe and I, he didn't stay. He came with me. We went back to our apartment and turned on CNN and we're watching what was developing. And then about 45 minutes later, I said to him, what do you think they're doing for the hockey game? And we turned on, we turned over to the cable access channel and on the screen, it said tonight's, uh, it was the Barry Colts. Tonight's Colts telecast has been interrupted due to events in the Persian Gulf. Wow. And I, I can just imagine the average person in Barry, not Jewish, doesn't know anything about me or anything, turning on, wanting to watch the hockey game and turning it on saying, what in the world is going on? But that's the only time I've done that. And I, I don't think I would ever do that again. But And I haven't thought of that in years and years and years until you brought it up. So you mentioned wow. it before. But that was, mm -hmm. yeah, was, uh, I was only 23 then. But that... Um, that was, that was a tough one. So there's been some positive historical aspects as well that, again, players and coaches and sports has made a change. And one of them, I believe, was Hank Aaron, who, of course, we lost over these past few weeks. Yeah. Um, and there's a beautiful, beautiful line that uh, Vince Scully said. Um, and I want to say you tell you what he said. Um, he said when he hit a 715th home run in Atlanta, Vince Scully said, a black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. Uh, I saw another interview of you that Hank Aaron was really one of your heroes and meeting him was a very special time. Yeah. Um, what did he mean to baseball and also, again, the larger world? Well, he I mean, he means everything to baseball. I, I mean, in, in my mind, he, you know, he is the rightful home run record holder, although the record book doesn't state that. <laughs> he, you know, he went through a, a ton of racism on his way to breaking uh, Babe Ruth's record. He he did it in the South. He did it on the road where he was heckled and and it was threatened and and everything else. And he handled himself with class and dignity every single second he was on this earth. So you know he's on a short list of the greatest players ever, and I think he's on a short list of the greatest ambassadors ever for professional sports and 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 for many things. And I believe I only interviewed him in person twice i think and the you know those were big moments for me I, I i mean i've had a chance to meet a lot of really cool special athletes in my time i've been blessed i've been incredibly fortunate but if you were to say to me you know who's you know who's at the top i mean he's right there he, he's right there and and i just admire him i admire what he overcame i imagine i admire how he handled himself um, and it's a, it, it, it was a huge loss when he, when he passed a, a few weeks ago, I'm very glad baseball named an award after him, maybe mm -hmm. a decade ago now for, for the best offensive player in each league. He deserves that at the very least. And, um, he's, you know, his name, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, it'll, it'll still be here. It'll resonate. I, I don't mm -hmm. think, I don't think his name and his accomplishments are ever going to be diminished. As a beautiful article in the LA times that said, who would have ever thought this from Bud Selig, his good friend, and obviously yeah. the Milwaukee, Atlanta, Braves connection. Who would have ever thought all those years ago that a black kid from Mobile, Alabama would break Babe Ruth's home run record and a Jewish kid from Milwaukee would become commissioner of baseball? Yeah. Are these labels even relevant today? And if so, what are the next steps to remove those labels? 
are they i mean they're relevant today but i don't think they're quite as it, it, it's a difficult one I, I mean in some ways i like to think things are getting better mm-hmm. and in some ways i worry that they're getting worse and and mm-hmm. whether that's within the sport or or just in a greater in greater society um i i guess it's up to each person individually to uh to to speculate but i i'm not a label person i i don't i, I don't think about it i i don't like if you said to me on the Toronto Blue Jays, how many white players, how many black players, how many Latin American players? I, like I, I would have to write it down. I, I just don't think in those terms. I think, you know, you should be evaluated for the person you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'd like to think most people think that. But I, I'm not naive. I, I know not everybody feels that way. But, um, you know, when, when in the 70s, there, were, there was a much higher percentage of African Americans in baseball than there are now. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons for that. I, I mean, there are so many more Latin Americans and, and mm-hmm. players from Asia that there just there aren't as many American players in. But but you know, there's a lot of concern that inner city African American kids just don't have the opportunity, don't have the resources to play baseball, or they're turning to basketball or football for a variety of reasons. And I'd love to see um, them represented. Uh, on a larger level in in, in baseball, I, you know, I'm a baseball guy, so I want to see all the good athletes come to baseball. But a lot of them are are choosing other sports. Um, in terms of Jewish, like honestly, in my entire career, I don't know that I have felt a label more than two or three times. And and you know, there are Jewish players, as you know, not not many. I would say in any given year, I would guess maybe five, six, seven Jewish players in the major leagues at any given time. Um, some are a little more upfront about it. Some are born Jewish, but aren't religious at all. Uh, you know, but uh, at, at any given time between uh, owners, presidents, general managers, and members of the media, we're fairly well represented, actually. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you always, uh, you always feel that. But um, I'm not a label person. Uh, I would like us to move away from labels and just everybody be treated on the basis of how they treat other people. Well, one label you are is a Canadian and lover of the Toronto Blue Jays. And the question from Randy Brown, your re- recollection of the Joe Carter walk-off home run. So, Randy, this is a very good question. You don't know how good of a question you just asked. So, <laughs> uh, in 1993, when Joe Carter hit that home run, I was I was doing the pre- and post-game show for the Blue Jays radio network. So, during the game, I did not have any responsibilities. So, through the Blue Jays, I bought tickets. And I was sitting down the right field line. So going to the bottom of the ninth inning in game six, the Phillies were leading six to five. And I did the postgame show immediately after the game from a, a setup we had in the in the lobby above center field. There's a hotel there. And we would do it live from the hotel lobby. So when it went to the bottom of the ninth, I said, I better go because it takes a few minutes to get up. So there's a like an employee freight elevator in the bowels of what was then the Sky Dome, now Rogers Center. And it's one of these big ones, you know, where the, the wooden door closes and then the metal door comes down. Like it's a it's a legit, you know, big freight elevator, but they let us use it. So I get in the elevator and it takes a while for the doors to close. And then it's, it's you know, it's just not working properly. It's going up very slowly. And as I'm in the elevator, I hear this unbelievable, deafening, shaking noise. <laughs> and I knew... They had won the World Series, but I didn't know what happened. 
But I, I had to get in the elevator and go because if they went three up, three down really quickly, I, I would have been late to get to my show. So I was in an elevator, not wow. seeing, not seeing anything when he hit the home run. I didn't see it <laughs> later that night when I went home and saw it on TV. So how do you go into a post-game show <laughs> not even knowing what just happened? Uh, well, I, I would have found out by the time I got there. It, and uh, I don't remember exactly who our guest was or what the questions were, but um it, it, you know, I'm sure somebody helped me out. The producer was waiting for me at the set when I when I got there. But um, it, it it was an interesting it was an interesting moment. It was a very that was a very uh, uh, fortuitous question there by Randy. That that's one of the more memorable funny moments of my career. He's actually a rabbi, Randy Brown in D.C., and it looks like your rabbi as well is looking over here. Uh, rabbi Jared Grover saying Shulman and Sher- Sherman number one. So oh, hello, Rabbi Grover. <laughs> <laughs> but he's um, he's not a sports fan at all, so he. Uh... I didn't bring that up. You did, and you can uh, you can fight over the Shabbat table with him there as well. Okay. Um, we're gonna go to college basketball for just a few moments. Um, that that's my game, and uh, Syracuse is my my town where I grew up, and uh, actually. Uh, sat just a couple of feet behind you for many of those games that you did in the Carrier Dome. Very different atmosphere than an empty Cameron Indoor, as I saw this past weekend with you and Jay Billis. Here's a Duke-Syracuse game um, from uh, just a couple of years ago, and I just want to ask you a question on that. So we're just going to share the screen and uh, enjoy this moment right here. Duke-Syracuse coming down to the wire. Off the clock for that. Suleiman. It's the look. Oh! 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 Unbelievable! Can't believe it, Danny Schumann. I can't believe it. What a college basketball game. 38 years, Jimmy B says. It's the most hyped game, and it has lived up to that hype. They are stunned. Here at the Carrier Dome, and you can't blame them. Rush. That line, they are stunned in the Carrier Dome, and you can't blame them. All Dick Vitale can say is, oh, and you have this one-liner. What is number one, working with Dick Vitale in a game like that? And how do you come up with that line in that moment to really tell us? I was sitting here in Los Angeles. I was about to go to a wedding that night, and I told my wife, Listen, we got to wait a few moments here. We're going into overtime. What is that like? And how do you bring that sentiment of what they're feeling to the world? Well, first of all, if memory serves, Syracuse won the game in overtime, I believe. And then I mean, they went yeah. down to Duke later that year and lost the rematch, I think. So, but I do remember. Did you do the, did you do the Bayheim jacket game? Yeah, that's the rematch down at Duke. Oh, that's man. CJ Fair, I think yeah. that's all the same year. I've, <laughs> I've done a lot of games and they blend together, yeah. but. Um, I first went to a game at Syracuse when I was in college in Canada, like just as a fan, because I loved college basketball and Syracuse and Michigan are the two closest places uh, to Toronto. So I had been there in, you know, 86, 87, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the Derek Coleman days, maybe even yeah. Pearl Washington. I don't remember, but um, I was there back then. And as you know, as you know, they're the only school that plays in the in a football stadium, and they they kind of do the court at one end of the football stadium, and there's a big curtain up. But you can have people in the upper deck, like at the far 35, 30 yard line. You can have thirty five thousand people there. I've been and, there. <laughs> and yeah, and I was one of those guys back in in the eighties when I used to go. So I knew what to expect. But that game, you know, Syracuse, that might have been their first year in the ACC. I'm not sure. They had been in the Big East forever. So their first game against Duke was a huge event. 
And, and I, I love it. Um, I, I love, you know, as you know, my son goes to Syracuse and, and he loves it there. Um, I love going and doing games at Syracuse. I love when they have 30,000 there. Unfortunately, the last two, three years, they haven't been as good and now COVID, obviously. So, but, you know, it's been a while since they've had that 30,000 plus crowd. Um, but games like that are, are uh, you know, they're, they're, they're really fun. You know, it means everything to everybody in Syracuse, New York. You know it means everything to everybody in Durham, North Carolina. And you know you've got millions of, of people watching, although you try not to think about that part. Mm-hmm. You get nervous. But how do I think of that line? I, I don't know. Like, uh, I'm, you know, the nature of play-by-play is you don't have a script. There, mm-hmm. There's no script. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I'm comfortable with that. And it's not like everything I've ever said has turned out great. I've had some, why'd you say that moments? But, um I, I think what I try to do, I don't pre-plan anything. Wow. I say what I feel. I say what I see. And in that moment, I mean, you could see the shot of the fans. They were stunned. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the the Carrier Dome would have been definitely, that's always been one of my hard words to say, definitely loud. And then in an instant, when the ball went through the hoop, yes, silence. Yep. Like a vacuum sucking all the sound out of the Carrier Dome. And that's what I was feeling. They were stunned. And uh, sometimes the best thing you can say is nothing at all. But Yeah, that's what I was about to yeah. say, actually. Especially yeah, well, if it had been the other way around, if Syracuse had hit a three to tie it, I, I doubt I would have said anything because the crowd noise would have been so loud. That would have carried the moment. But when the crowd noise is going away, you have to say something. And, of course, Vital saying something all the time. So you got to go in there once in a while. But that, I, I love doing games at Syracuse. It's really I think cool. you would have been in the freight elevator running away from the yes. story of the court. <laughs> yeah. um, in Judaism, actually, in the Talmud, we say, Chavruta omituta means you should have a study partner. And that's the only way that you can really uh, you can really live. You can't do it by yourself. Right. Working with Vital, working with Billis, what is it like having that partner in crime, um, sharpening your mind, if you wish, um, and who's been the – Obviously, they've been greats, but who's been who's been fun to work with, and and what are the differences? I mean, they're both great. I've worked with some wonderful people in baseball. You saw Earl Hershiser and and Bobby Valentine. I've worked with John Cruck, and and I've worked with Aaron Boone, who is one of my closest friends. I worked with a lot of great people, uh, and in Canada on, on the Blue Jays, I work with some great people as well. So I would never say this person's the best or that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for our purposes, you know, to work with Dick and Jay, first of all, you can't have two people who are more different than, than Dick and Jay, but it but it is it is a partnership. It, it is there, you know. To in order to make it the best, um, you have to be teammates, and, and we are teammates. And, mm-hmm. and in both cases, I respect them; they respect me. I trust them; they trust me. I won't put them in a bad spot; they won't put me in a bad spot. And you get to know each other's talking points. You get to know each other's inflection and cadence, and and all those sorts of things. But I actually keep on my computer because I have nothing to do sometimes when I'm on the road. I have a word document of all the different people I've worked with. And between wow. Canada and the U S and baseball and basketball, I've got, I think about 60 different people that I've done games with at some point, but I've done a ton with Jay and a ton with Dick and, and they're both great at what they do. And um, it, it's, it's, it's to use a basketball analogy. It, it's as if I'm the point guard, and they're one of the other, they're the shooting guard or they're the four, whatever. I start with the ball, but it's my job to move the ball around, get it to Jay, mm-hmm. to the reporter, get it back to the producer who's got a graphic to put up or a replay to put up. So uh, I like the assist more than the bucket. I'm happy to move the ball around and get everybody else in there. 
I was thinking more like the rabbi and the chazan on the bima, but the point guard's a good one too as well. <laughs> yeah, it's all very yeah. simple. Uh, yeah. One last audience question, then we're going to conclude uh, this morning uh, from Ron Harari, a uh, member of our congregation here at Sinai. What are your thoughts on college basketball players getting paid to play? It's a very good question. So I will tell you in most respects in life, I think I'm a traditionalist. And I disagree with people. Let, let me back up. I think there is a lot of value in getting a college education paid for. Um, you know, and it's a very small percentage of college players who go on to the NBA and go on to stardom and fame and fortune. That having been said, everybody is getting, uh, a lot of people are making a lot of money off college sports and the athletes aren't. And is that fair? Like who's to decide that's professional sports and that's amateur sports? Mm -hmm. Who makes that decision? It's one of those, well, it's just the way it's always been kind of things. I get paid to broadcast college athletics. Why shouldn't the people on the court get something? Mm -hmm. Now, should there be a total free market? You know, if, if my son were a great player, should he be able to say, okay, recruiting's open. And Kentucky says, we'll give him 400,000. And Duke says 500,000. And UCLA says 600,000. Like that, that feels like a little bit like the wild, wild west to me. I know some people say, open it up. That's the way to do it. Uh, I don't know that I feel that way, but I do feel there's room for them to get more than they're getting now. There are some areas where, you know, if they were taken out for a meal or then it's a violation. And I think all of that stuff's archaic. If they want to fly home and see their families, if their families want to come see them, mm -hmm. um, shouldn't they be allowed to hold a job? And if they and you know, it's perceived as a, as an impermissible benefit if they got that job because they were a college athlete. But you know what, if, if, if my son is a musician right. or yours or your daughter is an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. they go out and make a living while they're in college. Why shouldn't the athletes be given the same rights as everybody else? Mm -hmm. So I guess that's the way how that, that I feel. And I know that might not jive with the wild, wild west line that I said earlier. Yeah. Again, this is maybe above my, you know, my level to to interpret these things. I, I don't think it should be wide open, but I do think they they should be getting more than they're than they're getting right now. Especially, you know, shoe contracts and TV contracts, and we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars. And these kids shouldn't have to worry about. You know, I'm homesick. I'd like to go home this weekend. You know, that sort of thing. I, I think there, I think there's room to expand it beyond where it is now. So I always like to end with a positive message. And you know, many students walk into this office here, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, and I always say, "What do you want to be when you get older?" And they say, "I want to be in the NBA. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a soccer player." What's your message to young people about the power of sports in their lives and how they can use that? even if they're not going to be in the NBA or even college basketball, or even on the high school team, what is that power of sports today? Well, on a broader level, my message for young people is always to pursue your dream. And sometimes parents and teachers will look at me funny. And, uh, you know, I was supposed, I, I graduated as an actuary. I was supposed to do something with numbers and finance. And I did very briefly before I decided it wasn't for me. And I went to my parents and grandparents and, told them what I wanted to do and asked for their support and they were nervous, but eventually they supported me and, and it, and it turned out well. So on a, um, on a broader scale, I always, and I've told my sons this, my sons know they have me over a barrel. I can never, <laughs> I can never say to one of my sons, 
well, nobody I know makes a career in that. You can't do that. You've got to do this because I didn't do that. So they could throw it right back in my face. So they're, you know, they're allowed to do whatever they want. So my, my broader message is uh, pursue your dream. If you, you, you know, if you do something you love, you'll love what you do. You've got to do it for about 40 years. 40 years is way too long to be unhappy. Um, you know, I my dad was a dentist and he, he loved the interaction with the patients. He's a very social guy, but he didn't love his job. And I grew up seeing my dad every Sunday night get anxious because of going back to work the next day. And I, I, I didn't want that. And I don't want that for my children. And, and I don't think anybody should want that for anybody. So do something you love. Don't worry about, are you going to make money? Are you going to do it? If, if you like it, I think there are chances that the chances are very strong. You're going to be good at it, good at it because the work is not going to feel like work as much as if you don't like what you do. So that having been said, sports, um, you know, if you want to play in the NBA, that's great. Uh, the odds uh, are against you, but <laughs> keep, keep going until they tell you you can't do it anymore. And then if you still want to be in sports, you know, my son, maybe in part because he grew up, you know, with me, my son went into broadcasting. If, if you'd like to get maybe you want to be a player agent, you know, go get a business degree, go get a law degree. Uh, something like that. There are, there are lots of, you know, different ways to work in sports. Not quite as many ways. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many calls I get from friends of mine or friends of friends of mine or friends of friends of friends of mine. Say, hey, can you talk to my son or daughter? Yeah. They'd love to get into blah, 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 sports. And um, it, it's hard because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of young people who love sports, as I did. And, and I got very lucky to, to be able to make a career out of this. Um, but I would say if you want to do it, do it. But, like, don't get into it for glamour or fame or because you think it's easy. You got to work. Uh, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, a surgeon. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not helping people in those ways. Uh, I'm just providing a little entertainment for people when they when they want to watch a game. But don't confuse that with the fact that it's not a lot of work. So um, I would say whatever, if you want to get into sports in whatever respect, do it. If that's your dream, do it. But be prepared for hard work and long hours, weekends and nights, and maybe having to move to a different city and all kinds of weird stuff. There, there, are, there are sacrifices to be made. You know, you make them in your in your field as well. There are sacrifices to be made when you're not a, a typical nine to five person, but if you're doing something you love, hopefully the pluses uh, outweigh all of the, all, all the other stuff. Just want to point out, there are many rabbis from around the country right now watching this. And it's fascinating when you talk about faith and sports. Um, I don't, maybe synagogues are closed today for some reason. Um, <laughs> real quick uh, predictions on a Dodger repeat. That's a yes, no answer. Am I picking them or the field? That's what you're asking me to do? <laughs> Steve Bellenfant asked, predictions on a Dodger repeat. Well, I, I think they're the best team, Steve, but I would never, if, if you ask me yes or no, I'm always taking the field in baseball. Baseball is so unpredictable. College basketball is so unpredictable. I would never say this team over everybody else. But if you said pick one team that I think is going to win it, then then I would pick the Dodgers. I mean, going out and getting Trevor Bauer obviously hasn't, hasn't hurt them. They're ridiculously deep and they've got some young players who I think are going to be better. Um, the Yankees are still going to be very good and watch out for the team on the rise north of the border. The Toronto Blue Jays are getting better fast. So watch out for 
give the Blue Jays two more years. Blue Jays, Dodgers will win it this year, and then next year it's the Blue Jays and the Padres in the World Series. How about that? You heard it right here on Rabbi on the Sidelines, the Blue Jays and the Padres. I love the 40-year analogy. Maybe you took that from uh, the Torah and Moshe and the Jews wandering the desert. Um, but really, Dan, besides being an amazing, amazing commentator, play-by-play sports broadcaster, ESPN and Sportsnet, as I mentioned you earlier this week, I think your biggest title is an Ish Anav, a humble man and truly a mensch for the Jewish community, the sports world, and the greater world as well. We are so grateful for you, for your time, and what you do, as you said, during this really challenging time in the world. We need those moments to smile to have joy, and it's exactly what you do. So you do fulfill a wonderful, wonderful role in our world and uh, life as well. We are so thankful to Dan Shulman and joining us for Rabbi on the Sidelines. We'll see you next week. Okay.